For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. Peyton Manning received multiple puncture wounds to the back of his neck and a fractured leg as a result of nearly being carried away by a black bear. The attempted eating or predation incident occurred in Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania. It was broken up by Peyton's owner, a local pastor, who ran at the black bear in, let's say, a hard blitz fashion. The medium-sized black bear fell back in the pocket and fumbled Peyton Manning, which, if you haven't guessed, is a nine-year-old Maltese Silky Terrier mix. A canine. A dog. What a twist! Which, oddly enough, is about the size of a football. After being dropped, Peyton did an end-around-the-house type move and slid under a parked car while his owners, the pastor and his wife, continued to drive the bear downfield. <whistles> All right. I don't know for certain that the multi-silky mix named Peyton Manning is actually the size of a football, but I do know we can't pretend this is the first time Peyton's been picked off. The first time he's been intercepted in his own backyard trying to use the bathroom, for sure. If I was up to date on my football, I'd be able to keep the jokes running, but we seem to be in a fourth and long situation already. Pennsylvania Fish and Game warns that black bears are fresh out of their winter dens and looking for food. Turn on the lights and make loud noises before letting your pets out at night. Bad news for light sleeping neighbors, but a real touchdown for Fido. Pennsylvania is a state known for a large black bear population. Currently, the state hosts over 16,000 bears, which is down from a peak of over 20,000 individuals. Pennsylvania has black bears in almost every county and has averaged a hunter harvest of 4,000 bears in the last five years. That's on average. 
an 875-pound bear was checked in by a hunter in 2010, which is the heaviest in the state, but not necessarily an anomaly, as there have been seven other bears that have weighed in over 800 pounds reported since 1992. In just the 2019 bear season, there was a bear checked in over 800, two checked in over 700, and seven bears over 600. I'll tell you, you can do a lot of black bear hunting in far-flung places like Alaska and British Columbia and not find bears in this weight class. Now, the biggest record book bears don't go by weight. They go by skull size as weight fluctuates so wildly with bears between the spring and the fall. The almost U.S. record black bear was a 700-pound bear with a skull that measured 23 and 3 sixteenths and the standing U.S. hunter-taken black bear at 23 and 9 sixteenths. Both of those are Pennsylvania bears. The world record American black bear is listed as a skull found outside of Ephraim, Utah. That skull measured 23 and 10 sixteenths. If football is a game of inches, black bears is a game of sixteenths, apparently. Now, how you come up with these numbers, if you're interested, is very simple and accurate. Grab a metal tape, your bear skull, and a framing level. Find a square corner in your house or garage or wherever. Place your bear skull in the corner with the point of the nose touching one wall and the outermost edge of the occipital bone, you know, that like uh, thing, that bone that hooks around the eyeball socket. Make sure that's touching the other wall. Place your framing level in a vertical orientation against the outermost edge of the occipital bone and make sure it is level. Measure the distance between the wall and the level as close to the skull as possible. That is your width measurement. Remember that, write it down. Repeat this process for the length measurement by placing the level on the outermost point at the rear of the skull. Add these two measurements together. That's it. Now you have successfully reduced an awesome animal to a number. Your time is better spent in the kitchen, rendering fat, eating the roast beef of the woods, and sharing it with others. But, you know, measuring stuff is fun. This week, we've got people problems, record book rams, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is brought to you by Steel Power Equipment. It's that time of year. All sorts of nasty stuff is emerging from the eroding snow and will probably get more snow, the heavy kind, as soon as those branches above your yard or car get those new little baby buds on them and they'll end up on the ground creating more work when you just want to go after some spring gobblers or ice off hungry fish fishing. So make that cleanup easy and look like a pro while you're doing it by supporting this podcast and buying steel power equipment makers of the world's best battery and gas-powered saws. Go to SteelUSA.com to find a certified, independent, know-what-they're-talking-about steel dealer near you. As for my week, all sorts of stuff is happening. It is hard to keep track. I'm gearing up for, and by the time you hear this, we'll be in Tennessee hunting turkeys with Danielle Pruitt and Chef Michael Hunter. We'll try our best to avoid ticks, bag a few birds, and do some serious cooking. I've been dragging out the turkey gear, calls, decoys, camo. Here's a hot tip for you budget-minded, conscious folks. 
buy one of our leafy tops and face masks at First Light, throw that over the top of whatever clothes you currently have. They're super durable. They look better with age. You can hand them down with generations. I bring this up because I put two of these in my turkey pack and will often set one up as a makeshift ground blind, just high enough to cover my slate call and hand movements. I'll bring more clothes than you think I would need. Tennessee is warm, but it's humid. Turkey hunting is early, which I'd actually love, but you sit in the dark, motionless sometimes for hours, and that gets cold. Sighting in shotguns is the other thing I've been doing, which, if I'm being honest, is not my favorite thing in the world. I recently gravitated to the red dot sights last year, which, you know, the progression kind of went like no sights, you know, just the shotgun bead and then iron sights and then the fancy setup with the red dot, not because of misses, but because they are great for first time turkey hunters. Folks don't naturally shoot shotguns like a rifle, which is what you should do during turkey season. And this helps. Also, because I started shooting that damned number 9 TSS, it kills turkeys. It stones them. But I shaved off parts of three teeth attempting to eat my birds. With the scope, I can pattern my shotgun high, and it comes close to eliminating the tooth-breaking straggler pellets hitting the eating parts of the bird. The other thing I'm getting ready for is a trip with my good buddy Stephen Ranella to do some archery hunting this spring, which means a lot of arrow flinging, getting the recurve back in shape. Just replaced my lucky string after a good six seasons of use. How's that for thrifty? Been tuning arrows, making sure those tuned arrows drive from knock tip through broadhead tip through the target, getting that muscle memory back. I shoot in my garage daily, which is tuning myself for proper form and release. And not that making clean ethical kills isn't motivating enough, but my good buddy Steve really doesn't like the fact that I choose to shoot something less technologically advanced than a compound bow. It irks him. So I shoot even more. Next up, a little housekeeping, then we'll get on with the show. The Bear Grease podcast is finally out. Clay Newcomb does a fantastic job going deep on the subject of mountain lions east of the Mississippi. Check that out. Another thing I wanted to tell you is I follow all sorts of food accounts on Instagram. One of these is called Barnacle Foods. They're out of Juneau, Alaska. I started following these folks because they do all sorts of super interesting, cool stuff with bull kelp. Bull kelp is a super abundant seaweed found in, you know, nice cold water of Alaska. These folks are hand-picking the seaweed and putting it into all sorts of offerings like salsa and hot sauce. It's awesome stuff. This was super intriguing to me because old Matt Ranella and I up at the fish shack in southeast Alaska pulled some bull kelp one time and made our own pickles out of it. You know, there's like two parts of it. There's the fronds, which is like the leafy kelp-looking thing. And then there's the other part, which is called the uh, stipe. And the stipe is like a big, long cucumber with a bulb on the end of it kind of looking thing, right? And it's all hollow. And you just slice that thing into rings, then you can make pickles out of it or uh, grind it up like these folks do for salsas and stuff like that. One thing that they do not do, okay, is you got this beautiful bulb thing that's a natural vessel. And if you were to take that thing and pickle it and turn it into a giant pickle, You could then fill it with your favorite Caesar or Bloody Mary seasoning, and then you'd have an edible glass for that adult beverage. 
Nobody's doing this, to my knowledge, and I think it's the best idea ever. I personally like to opt for a Bloody Maria, which is super tasty but super annoying to order anywhere because I always feel like the folks that hear the more popular Bloody Mary all the time, despite my asking for a Bloody Maria, that I end up with vodka, which is disgusting. Get me a vodka rocks. Mom, it's breakfast. And a piece of toast. So I'm like the annoying person who's like, yeah, I want a Bloody Mary, but I want it with tequila instead of vodka. And then it's this socially awkward thing. Anyway, quick listener email. I work shift work. One year, I was working swing shift in the spring when beavers disperse. I live in the hills north of Fairbanks. I was almost home, and I see a critter walking downhill on the road when I realized it was a beaver. I decided that since I had a license in my pocket and it was still trapping season, I'd try to club this critter with my tomahawk and take it home. It had other plans. Yes, this person travels with a tomahawk in their vehicle. This beave had a very well-defined personal bubble. When I'd approach that threshold, it would stop, turn towards me, and hiss. When I took another step, it would charge me, leaping at my shins, hissing and growling deep from its throat. We did this dance several times. I never did feel like the tomahawk I had provided the necessary reach to dispatch the ornery critter without placing my shins in unnecessary danger. In the end, it waddled on down the road, and every spring since, I put a bat in my vehicles. But I haven't had the opportunity since. Thank you, Temple from Fairbanks. That was an illuminating addition to the subject of beaver dispersal in the spring. Temple also writes, I still think you guys were wrong in discouraging exploration of Anwar. It should happen, if it can be done safely and profitably for Alaskans and Alaska. Moving on to the problematic extraction desk. Piney Point, Florida, an old fertilizer plant settling pond, which apparently is called a stack, began to show signs of failing, as in bursting one of its walls. Behind this wall was some 480 million gallons of water. Officials estimate that a catastrophic failure of this wall would have released a 20-foot-tall wall of water upon the nearby residents. In the potential path of this water, and in the zone of mandatory evacuation declared Easter Sunday, are a mix of industrial and agricultural land, 300 homes, a general aviation airport, and a jail. Inmates were moved to other facilities or, as was the case for over 100 people in lockup, they moved up one floor. Roll up your pant legs, fellas. It's gonna get wet. It's over, Anakin! I have the high ground! Immediately, crews began pumping water from the stack out into Tampa Bay. The current rate is at 38 million gallons of water a day. The pumping started immediately when the crack was detected, but at a much slower rate. The National Guard was utilized after Governor Ron DeSantis declared a state of emergency and pumps were brought in by a Chinook helicopter. Over two dozen pumps were operating at the peak of the operation, sending 23,500 gallons of water per minute toward Tampa Bay while the breached water that went through the phosphogypsum itself was apparently diverted and trucked to a different site in order to prevent potentially radiated byproducts of phosphogypsum from going into Big Piney Creek. The water, depending on the source, is contaminated to various levels. Having the acidity of possibly as little as a cup of coffee, it's high in phosphorus. Phosphorus is the agricultural byproduct that can be linked on occasion to algae bloom events. 
you know, that situation where the bloom eats all the available oxygen, causing all the fish to die. There's nitrogen and fluoride in this wastewater as well. And when was the last time you said, can I get a side of fluoride with my snapper filet? Never. Here's a quote for you. Quote, it is a big problem. The other ponds on that property and the property in and of itself is a problem. It is a wastewater compound. We do have everyone's attention from Washington, D.C. to Tallahassee down to the regional level. And here's another quote for you. Piney Point is managed by a holding company with insufficient assets to manage an accidental spill. And that such a spill could create an overwhelming environmental impact. The state funding, according to the request, will be used to treat the water and prevent harmful phosphorus, nitrogen, and fluoride from reaching local water bodies and protection from catastrophic failure of stack contaminant and untreated discharge of phosphogypsum processed water. Which, gang, is kind of a really long-winded way of addressing ANWR, or any extractive industry on or near our water, pebble mine, whatever it may be. Anwar, we're talking breeding grounds primarily for a lot of our migratory birds. Caribou. Really, as far as I'm concerned, anywhere. Stories like this make you cautious. There is a horrible track record of development and abandonment. In this case, a private company creates a mess within Manatee County in the state of Florida. Then, they declare bankruptcy. The residents of that county and that state are stuck with the bills until another company comes along that promises to contain and mitigate the mess, but they have to be able to make money to do so also, so they kick the can down the road until the mess is again on the county, on the state, and now on everybody who pays taxes in the U.S. Federal funds to the tune of $200 million will be used in addition to what has already been spent by the Army Corps of Engineers, the EPA, and the Florida National Guard. That, in a nutshell, is why not everyone sees extractive industry as a promise of a better future. That is why, every time I mention this, I get emails from listeners who work in mines that are doing it right. They're saying, not us because they don't want their jobs to be overshadowed by these bad actors, and they shouldn't. There are places that are providing good jobs and giving us all the stuff that we need out of the earth to, you know, live comfy and cozy and run our electric vehicles. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it, and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. 
I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it, you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on to the human trafficking desk. Sorry, just the human traffic desk. I know I didn't get to mention a lot of interesting animal facts in that last piece, I don't want you thinking I'm changing the format of the whole show, so just bear with me. A permitting system has recently gone into effect in a popular part of New York's Adirondack State Park. This spring, visitors accessing the Adirondack Mountain Reserve via the Keene Valley parking area will need to get one of 70 available reservations. This will apply even if a hiker is not actually parking a car in the lot. People just getting dropped off or even biking to the access point will still need a permit. A couple of important details. One, if you come by bus, then your bus ticket counts as a hiking permit, so take the bus. Two, the permits are free. After all, Adirondack Park has it right there in his 1892 mission statement as land set aside for the free use of all the people for their health and pleasure, but they are capped at 70 for that location. On one hand, the more barriers you put between people in the outdoors, the more people will just stay home. This is bad for them, but it's also bad for conservation. People need to have a relationship with nature if they're going to go protect it, spend some economic capital, or give a crap politically. If you want to be my lover, you gotta get with my friends. Wild places have been taking an absolute beating as the claustrophobia of 2020 and 2021 has pushed people outside in droves. Out here in the West, it seems like there are cars parked for miles around every trailhead, contributing to significant stress on elk herds and other vulnerable wildlife. In the Adirondacks, local flora getting trampled underfoot, an accumulation of trash, Park rangers stretch thin as neophyte hikers in flip-flops and cotton t-shirts get rescued during rainstorms. I do plenty of hiking in flip-flops for the record. So, if we don't impose some limits on people escaping into nature, like this permitting system, maybe, then nature might become more and more like the places people are escaping from. All of this is compounded when state budgets take a hit. New York State is now facing a $15 billion deficit, 
So if visitor numbers keep climbing, how do we pay for more rangers, more trash removal, more signs and barriers around fragile landscapes? Maybe now is a good time to restart the conversation about the so-called backpack tax. Just as hunters and shooters pay into conservation through the Pittman-Robertson tax on guns and ammo, and anglers pay via Dingle Johnson when they buy their fishing gear, why shouldn't hikers, birders, bikers, paddlers, rock climbers, and all the rest pay to protect the outdoors with gear purchases not specifically related to the shooting sports or fish-catching process? We'll call this your call to action. Just a reminder, pick up your crap, even if it's literal. Don't overload the trash cans. Somebody's got to pick up after you. Stay on trails and be courteous to others as you begin to explore this season. Moving on to an interesting update from the Bad Bill Desk. If you remember, South Dakota Bill HB 1140, which would have required conservation officers to have a warrant before they could go onto private land, has been not only resurrected, but passed. A quick refresher. As we all know, wildlife in this country belongs to all of us, even when animals move onto land owned by just some of us. And so, the professionals sworn to protect that wildlife need to have reasonable access to private ground to carry out their duty. Across the country, they have traditionally been able to do so through what's known as the Open Fields Doctrine of the Fourth Amendment. So, back to HB 1140. Initially, it died, I believe, in committee in the South Dakota Senate, and we all thought it was gone for good. However, with urging from Governor Kristi Noem, Senate Republican leader Gary Kamek pulled out an arcane parliamentary maneuver known as the, quote, smokeout to resurrect the bill. HB 1140 was passed on March 9th, and Noem signed the bill into law on March 29th, which means that now in South Dakota, If a conservation officer hears gunshots and sees spotlights flashing a field from a piece of private property before first light on the opening day of deer season, he or she cannot go investigate those fields without first obtaining a search warrant, which severely limits their ability to bring a potential poacher or thief of our common wildlife to justice. Which starts to make you feel that people with property get to play by different rules. As justification for pushing the law through, Governor Noem cited an 18-year-old incident where certain landowners who had granted access to hunters revoked those privileges after a conservation officer came onto the property aggressively to check the hunters' permits. In doing so, Noem was selling HB 1140 not as a service to landowners, but rather as essential to making sure that the average Joe Hunter is able to keep his or her permissions. If that is the case, would you think a provision in the South Dakota Fish and Game Handbook would have been sufficient, or did they need a new state law that died in committee from opposition, then rose like Lazarus from the dead, and was fast-tracked to the governor's desk just to protect law-abiding hunters? It's interesting. As a rule, if a conservation officer comes flying into your party while you are in the act of legally hunting, that conservation officer is either a jerk or just having a bad day. It happens, and it isn't a pleasant interruption. What I see most commonly, like 99% of the time, is they pull up to your vehicle and wait patiently for you to return when your hunt ends. And actually, here's an in-betweener situation for you. 
We got checked by a conservation officer while in the field hunting in South Dakota. He waded into a flooded farm field on private land, but only after he heard the shooting stop for the morning and we were picking up our decoys. It was a surprising but pleasant experience. We're going to stay in the Dakotas for another story, but we're going to go way, way back 75 million years. Scientists at the American Museum of Natural History were examining a collection of ancient clamshells that were discovered in modern-day South Dakota. While doing so, they noticed a pattern of very tiny holes in those shells. Where most people may have assumed that very old things get holes in them, these scientists put the shells under a microscope and documented a spiral structure to each of the holes characteristic of the holes octopus drill through shells with their tongues in order to eat the shellfish inside. And so, these holes, no wider than a strand of spaghetti, were the only evidence necessary to conclude that octopus existed in this region and were employing a hunting strategy that we still see them use today. Scientists had documented these same holes to 50 million years ago. But this new evidence tells us that octopus were preying on shellfish in the same way they do today, at least 25 million years before that, and in South Dakota, a place not known or famous for its smoked octopus. Because octopus have no skeletons, they have left behind almost no fossils. And so we have to rely on this kind of evidence from other species for everything we know about their origins and development. This find is also extremely cool because usually when I think of what was happening on Earth 75 million years ago, I kind of picture a hazy, generally kind of oozy type of basic life form type of state. Nothing nearly as advanced or aware as the octopus. But as we've discovered on the show before, octopus are unbelievably sophisticated with a brain that's distributed throughout their bodies. A recent video captured by a swimmer in Geograph Bay on the southwest tip of Australia shows an octopus rearing up and flinging its tentacles up and out of the water to ward off an encroaching swimmer. To think about a creature like that, that's that aware, scouting around for clams, that long ago, in South Dakota, makes me very happy. Before we end this Dakota roundup, Let's tip our hat to the new North Dakota Bighorn Sheep record holder, 23-year-old David Suda. Applicants for an in-state sheep tag have a .0036% chance of successfully drawing the tag. So Suda absolutely busted his hump to make sure he did not let the opportunity go to waste. He and his buddies, Jens Johnson and Ryan Seal, put their all into scouting, and the hard work paid off when Suda killed a 212-pound, 7.5-year-old ram on opening day. Couple of details. Not only was Suda dialed in on his scouting and shooting skills, he also planned ahead and got permissions on some of the private ranch land adjacent to the public he had been scouting. Of course, that wily ram moved on to private land once the hunter showed up. But due to his early permission scouting, Suda was able to follow right along. I'm very happy for this hunter. I'm even happier for the bighorn sheep population in western North Dakota. After a couple of failed attempts to reintroduce the species to this part of their historic range, populations finally got a foothold after sheep from Montana were relocated there in 2006, 2009, and 2020. Populations have been thriving ever since. In fact, 
for five of the last six years, a new state record has been set every year. Congrats, David. I have nothing against you, but I'm half hoping your record doesn't stand for too long, as those sheep keep multiplying and getting bigger and bigger. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're loving what you're hearing on the Cows Week in Review podcast, tell a friend or two. And most importantly, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks, sent right to your door visit mauinuivenison.com that's m-a-u-i-n-u-i venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order